This is Inside Curling. Welcome, everyone, to the program with our two World Curling Hall of Famers, Warren Hanson and Kevin Martin. I don't know what my title is. I got, I got to have something, you know. The World Briar Patch Hall of Famer. Thank you, Warren. That's I'm I'm, I'm proud. Yeah, I'm, te- I'm tearing up. I'm tearing up. <laughs> Let's get another show underway. Thanks a lot to all our great sponsors, Sports Interaction, who brings you what is happening around the curling world. Nestle Boost, the sponsor of the uh, mailbag segment, Community Tractor. They bring you hot rock topics. And Goldline, love that segment, brings you our guest called In the House. And we've got one today coming up. Here's what's on the show. A fairly quiet week on the curling tour this past week, uh, but there was a Tier 2 event, second time we've heard about this, uh, in Halifax. The Stu Cells 1824 Classic. Let's have a look at that, and we'll get some results. The Canadian Mixed Curling Championships, settle down now, not the mixed doubles, concluded last Saturday in Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, and we're going to find out who the winner was there. Hot Rock Topic, speaking of the Canadian Mixed Championship, it goes back to 1964, there are currently a number of events that are called Canadian Championships. Curling Canada funds some of them, and some they don't. Uh, why is that? Let's find out about it. Uh, you know, uh, like I was talking off air, boys, when we started the podcast, the residency rule thing just did not go away, right? We talked about it a lot, so we even said, okay, that's enough, but people keep weighing in on this, and we've got an email that's going to talk about that today. And our final segment, which we love, uh, in the house where we have a guest. Dean Gemmel is the new interim USA Curling CEO, and we're going to get him on to talk about all things uh, USA Curling. Uh, We look forward to that. So let's get to it, boys. What's happening around the curling world is brought to you by Sports Interaction. You want to bet? You can do it at Sports Interaction, Canada's sportsbook. Let's make sure you're 19 and Ontario only, please. Uh, Like we said, uh, Warren and Kevin, it's fairly quiet. A week on the curling tour but this two-tier event in Halifax sounds like it's pretty big the Stu sells 1824 classic but there were a few top tier teams there as well on the women's side Jennifer Jones and Caitlin Laws and with the men John Epping was there haven't heard of him in a little while time for them to step up Kev give us a wrap on the Stu sells yeah yeah it's a really good event out of Halifax actually on curling.live and uh on the women's side, let's talk about that for a second. Caitlin Laws, ranked number five in the world, took on Christina Black. Now, that's a name everybody should pay attention to. Currently ranked 16 in the world. A really good team. Uh, Christina actually beat uh, Jennifer Jones in the semifinal. 5-4, stealing, coming home, stealing the point, coming home. Jennifer Jones is currently in uh, number eight spot in the world. So, uh, Caitlin ended up playing Christina in the final. Caitlin Laws team winning that final five to four so uh yes a really good bond spiel really good teams in that event uh congratulations to the law group on the men's side john epping you're saying uh jimmy that you haven't heard yeah they've had a really kind of a struggling fall for them but here in halifax they ended up uh, beating jason cam in the final seven four they end up uh, they got a three in the third end and then stole another point in the fourth to kind of take control of that one so congratulations to john epping but you know i think that's a really big win for that team uh it's a new team and just haven't been playing very well for some reason they should be a little bit better than they are but a big win this week so we'll see going forward if that really pole vaults team epping uh going forward into the christmas season i was about to say the canadian mixed doubles but it's not it's the canadian mixed championship uh don't get confused like i often do uh this was held this past <laughs> not week. you jim no <laughs> <laughs> this was held this past week and i'm gonna just start the intro segments like this 
I don't know what we got, Warren. You go, okay? <laughs> uh, the Canadian Mixed Championship was held in Prince Albert, uh, Saskatchewan this week. Uh, again, it's not the mixed doubles. This is four-person curling. What are your thoughts on this, Warren? I, I know it's not the most popular one, but we're starting to hear about it a little bit. Well, the Canadian Mixed Championship has been around for a long time, 1964. And to clarify, you have to have two men and two women. The men must play skip or second, and the women lead or third, or you can switch it. And for the most part, the teams over time have had the, the men skipping. But in fact, a woman did win this thing way back in 2004. Shannon Clybrink skipped the winning team out of Alberta. Anyway, back to this past week. The event was won by Quebec, and it was the third year in a row that Quebec won the championship. It was a record. It has never been won by any province before three years in a row. The winning team was skipped by Felix Asselin with Laurie Saint-Georges at third, Emile Asselin at second, and Emily Riley playing lead. Felix is an up-and-comer from Quebec. He currently sits in position number 17 on the Canadian team ranking system in men's curling. And he also did quite well at the Tier 2 event up in Grand Prairie a couple of weeks ago. He made it to the fours. You may remember Saint-Georges as being a really good team from Quebec that did quite well in the Scotties back in 2021. So some young players from Quebec that are certainly forging ahead, and we look forward to seeing more of them in the future. The Quebec team is very dominant through the entire event, with the final win-loss record being 10-2. They beat Trevor Benoit of Northern Ontario 10-3 in the final. So Felix and his team will now go on to represent Canada at the World Mixed Championship in the fall of 2023. The Mixed Championship, again, has had some pretty... Uh, no notable people win over time. Just to mention a few of them, Rick Lang back in 1981, Rick Folk in 74 and 83, Jeff Stoughton in 88 and 91, Kevin Cooey in 2000, Jean-Michel Menard in 2001, of course, again, just last year, 2021, and he just won the World Mixed Championship not long ago. Mark Dacey won it in 2002 and 2010, and of course, as I mentioned, the only woman skipped to ever win it was Shannon Clybrink back in 2004. Mm-hmm. Kevin, um, since that time, uh, there's way, way more curling for these uh, high-performance guys. Um, you had mentioned some big names there, Warren, but those are several years ago. Do you see this, Kevin, as a thing that's kind of in the way now because there's so much other curling that, that some of the best players will not consider it anymore? Well, yeah, that could be the case where the top players may not consider just because they're so busy with uh, four-person curling, but also mixed doubles, which is different than the four-person curling we're talking about here. So Mm -hmm. you're right. um, For top players thinking with Olympic dreams, um, you've got two different ways to get in the Olympics, mixed doubles and four-person curling. So really the the time for high performance needs to be spent with those two events rather than mixed curling mixed curling is great though i think it's a wonderful thing it's just you're right jim i don't see where the time just just strictly time how how many weeks you have to compete at the at the highest level of four person uh men's or women's curling and then you need to fit in mixed doubles in between Uh, there's just not a lot of time for mixed curling uh, at the highest level but Mm -hmm. it's still it's still competitive it's just maybe just one rung down from from your four-person curling, uh, and that's okay. I, I don't see a problem with that. Right. Uh, congratulations to the winner. Hot Rock Topics, brought to you by Coyote Tractor. If you have work to do, Coyote has the tractors, UTVs, and STRs to do it. Coyote, we dig dirt. Uh, so we mentioned previously, of course, we've just been talking about the Canadian Mixed Championship. 
goes back to 1964. Uh, it's owned and operated by Curling Canada, but there's no title sponsor for it. There are a number of events that are referred to as Canadian championships besides the Scotties, Briar, and mixed doubles. U18, juniors, college, U25, mixed, seniors, club, masters, stick, and probably more. Uh, Warren, so Curling Canada operates and pays for some of these events, and some they don't. What's that all about, Warren? Yeah, there's quite a variety of things going on here. Um, I guess if we look today, the Scotties, the Briar, the U18, the U25, the juniors, the college to some degree, the mixed, the seniors, and the Curling Club Championship are all either totally funded or partly funded by Curling Canada. Meanwhile, two championships are also pretty prominent. The Masters and the Stick Curling Championship do not. They have no affiliation with Curling Canada. And so it's kind of an interesting thing. What is it that Curling Canada should be involved with with these secondary events and, and where should they not be? And to some degree, you got to look at the history. If you go back through time, the initial event, the Briar, up until the late 40s was the only event that existed at a Canadian level. And then the juniors, which was then the Canadian Schoolboys Championship, sprung into existence primarily because of Ken Watson. And eventually it had a sponsor in 1958 when Pepsi-Cola came on board. The Canadian Mixed Championship came into existence in 1964 for one reason. There was a sponsor in the way of Carlin Cave Brewery that decided they were going to sponsor this event. The following year, the seniors sprung up the same way because there was a sponsor. And then as time goes on, I won't go into details of when sponsors came out and when new ones came in, but through the 60s, 70s, there were periods of time when there were no sponsors. And then, because these sponsors had paid all the bills, mm -hmm. everybody looked towards the Canadian Curling Association or the Canadian Ladies Association to pay the bills. And this was going on, uh, that these events were still continuing, but there was no sponsor to pay for them. It kind of came to a head in the early 80s when all of a sudden Seagram's left the mixed championship. There was no sponsor of the seniors. Canadian Curling Association and the Canadian ladies had very little money. And the only way they could see being able to continue to pay for these things in the same manner in which they were, they had to introduce what they call and still exist a competitor's fee, which at that point in time, it was big enough that it did more or less pay for these events. But today it, it pays for very little. Mm -hmm. So we continue with this, uh, this situation today. The Masters Stick Curling came into existence. There was no sponsor. So Curling Canada never got involved. And so it's a little bit of a muddled, uh, a muddled situation again. I believe it should be cleared. I think Curling Canada should only be involved at the national level funding events that are connected to high performance, which lead to the Olympics. That would be men's, women's, and mixed doubles. Mm -hmm. The feeder to those events, which is the juniors, the U25 and college, they, again, financially should be involved in those to some degree. The U18 is an interesting one. Maybe they should, maybe they shouldn't. Maybe this should be a provincial obligation completely and totally. But as far as the Curling Club Championship, the mix, the seniors, the Masters and Stick Curling, I think they should have their own organizations and be funded either by the people that are playing it or by the provincial associations if they feel it's important enough. Mm -hmm. And that this whole current situation where it's very unclear as to who pays for what should be cleared. I was there for many years when the Masters group, continually every year there was a presentation to Curling Canada. They wanted to be in the same category as the mixed and seniors were. Curling Canada paid a lot of the bills. It was repeatedly rejected, and of course, again, because there never was a title sponsor to, for this thing to come into existence, Curling Canada never got involved. So anyway, my thoughts. Kevin, what do you think? Well, when it comes to growing the sport, I think first concerns are juniors 
um, growing at the younger ages. Uh, that's our pipeline to the podium. There's no question about that. Um, and then, of course, you need to to get money into your high performance to compete against nations right now like Sweden and Switzerland and Scotland that are doing so well. So um, we need to look after high performance, need to look after the juniors and, and the pipeline going forward. Um, the other ones, if, if there's money available to fund them, fine. But um, first things first have to be high performance and the pipeline to high performance to get on the podium. Mm-hmm. And that winning medals does no question uh, attracts young players, young athletes into our sport, and that's healthy. There's no two ways about it. We need to look after the kids, and we need to look after the pipeline to the high performance to the podium. If we get on the podium, more kids will play, and you have a really nice, healthy cycle. All the other things, that, you know, the periphery events. If we can fund them, great. But if uh, if times are tough, and if, if you know things are tight. You got to look after the pipeline to the podium first. Yeah, I, there's so much comparison, uh, Warren, between curling and golf. When I when I think of you're talking about title sponsorship, when I think of golf, say say your Canadian Amateur Championship or your provincial Amateur Championships, there's no funding there, Warren. There's no title sponsors, and and I think everyone's just okay with that because it. I don't want to say it doesn't deserve it, but it just doesn't rank high enough for a, a sponsor to step up. You're right. It needs to be assessment. So where's the money coming from that pays for this stuff today? Well, the assessment per player in Canada is about two bucks a person. Mm-hmm. Uh, the competitor's card brings in, last time I checked, it was probably less than $200,000 a year. Between the competitor's card and the dues paid to Curling Canada, it's less than a half a million dollars a year. Their budget's tw- over $20 million. Mm-hmm. And the fact of the money to pay for a lot of these events not right now, I hate to say it, but it comes from money generated by the season champions. And that's what's paying for it. Mm-hmm. And so to some degree, every, this, everybody just wants everything to be quiet and it continues that way. But that, to a very large degree, is not the way it should be done. If, right. if, if it's going to be paid for by the national body and there's no sponsor attached to it, which in many cases there isn't, then I think the money needs to be coming from the people that are participating. And like the Masters and the Stick Curling, form your own association, your own group, and run your own national championships. Right. Hey Jimmy, I thought I thought you were comparing curling and golf to being how frustrating they are trying to learn them, <laughs> chasing that well, white ball right. around or, or trying to get a curling rock to behave properly. I I went to try curling and the problem was I couldn't get down in the hack, so that was the end of that. I walked, I turned around, walked right back out to my car. Uh, Jim, Jim, you're built for stick curling. I really am. You know, when I, if I'm not, if people looked at me, Warren, they're probably saying. My my side gig is modeling. Man, nah, maybe not. I don't <laughs> what know. you need to do is come up with a stick curling version of golf that's as easy to learn as stick curling is. <laughs> well, the the way it's going, I will not be sticking with curling. Okay, I'm no good. <laughs> there you go. That was Hot Rock Topics. Uh, Mailbag is brought to you by Nestle Boost, complete nutrition to fuel your day. Uh, people may not believe this, Kevin Warren, but but we could have a year of shows and every single show, we could talk for an hour straight for 50 weeks in a row about the residency rule. It, it just, like I was saying, it just does not seem to go away. Uh, Warren gets all sorts of comments from people about it. So don't beat us up that we've got an email about the residency rule, but but it seems to be the you know front of mind with everyone in curling. Uh, so Flavor of the day. Yeah, yeah exactly. So here it is, uh, an, an email we got from Vinny Arsenal. He's very active on our Facebook page. And he asks this, hi, podcasters. I'm a curling junkie. I love your show. My question is regarding the, 
Here it is, residency rule. And why doesn't it apply to all? Looks like it's not truly enforced. We all know Guju is using two imports, EJ and Walker. EJ lives in Ontario, and the team is saying Walker is living in Newfoundland while his wife and kids live in Alberta. Well, maybe he doesn't like his wife and kids. Maybe they live in different provinces. <laughs> we all know where he spends his time, and it's not Newfoundland. So why is Team Guju allowed to do this? Let's all play by the same rules. From a happy fan, Vinny Arsenal. Okay, Warren. <laughs> Kev, you and I can go for coffee. We'll come back in 20 minutes. <laughs> well, Vinny, thanks for your email. And let me first say, uh, Brett Gushu is playing by the rules that are defined by Curling Canada. So he's not breaking the rules. Uh, no matter how they have laid this whole thing out, uh, Walker has been down this path before. He's following the the restrictions or the things that they have to do to ensure that he is considered to be playing out of Newfoundland Labrador. I, I agree. It's silly. We have far past the time where we need to be going through some kind of a pretense for a high-performance team, maybe the best team in the world, to be able to play together and that's far, far, far overdue for this thing to be tossed to the wayside and to be looked at in a whole different way. But uh, don't blame the curlers. They are doing what they have to do to keep the best teams in the world intact. And it's uh, Curling Canada, and not even Curling Canada, it's the provincial associations and the territorial situations who need to come to an awareness of where things sit today and deal with this properly. That's that's my thoughts on it. Kevin, where do you sit? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, where I sit, I, I'm fairly clear on this. We as athletes, I used to be, it's all about building a team good enough to try to beat uh, the bail-end homes of the old times, now the Nicodines or the Bruce Mowats and or uh, or the Sylvana Terranzonis or you name it, um, Fujisawa and so on, all these great teams from around the world. Canadian teams need to build teams good enough to compete at that level. It does not matter where the people are from. That's not the way to build a team. You don't find players because of where they live. You find players because of the level at which they play. And so you need to build these teams. And Brad Guzzi is no different. He's got him and Mark, fantastic. Now they need they need front end. Well, Jeff Walker's a fantastic lead. Great. He just happens mm-hmm. to be from Alberta. And EJ Harnden, you know, how do you question his power and strength and ability? He's an Ontario fella um, out of Northern Ontario. So, you know, it is what it is. They're not breaking the rules. You're right, Warren. But... More than that, it's, it's about the curling teams building what they need to partner with to make uh, to make the best team they possibly can, not just with shooting, but also sweeping and power and chemistry. So there's lots of things that need to be brought into the equation. I, I just don't see regional, I just don't see it being important anymore uh, to the teams. The teams themselves trying to build to beat these uh, international teams from a Canadian standpoint is so difficult and... Uh, I don't know, restraining them by having to have a certain group from a certain place and you have to have a player from here or there. And it's just, I don't think it works in today's world. We just have to let our athletes build the best team possible and uh, and then represent us and hopefully get on that podium. It's tough to get on the podium now mm-hmm. and uh, you need to build great teams. And right now, um, we we do have some terrific teams. You got Carrie Anderson on the women's side, Caitlin Laws and Rachel Holman. Those three teams are really strong. But are they all from the same place? Well, not not in most cases. Yeah. yeah. But who cares? Well, well, I'll tell you what. <laughs> I'll tell you who cares uh, is Brad Guju, because we've had him on the show several times, and he's been asked this a bunch of times. Uh, he would disagree with both of you because, as you recall, boys, he said, I'm, I would not like to see a non-provincial rule. Uh, he's down in the Maritimes because 
it would wipe out a lot of participation from those teams. So he's he's not he's not all for it. People are certainly going to listen well, to him, Kevin. I'm not sure you're right with that, Jim. That it would hurt participation. I think it might help it when you allow a really good young player from PEI, like Brett Gallant, one of the mm-hmm. best curlers in the whole world. But if he had to stay in PEI and build a team there, it'd be very difficult to build a team good enough to compete at the, on the world level against Nicodine. But he was able to move mm-hmm. and go with first with Guju now and now with with Team Botcher um, out of Alberta. But being able to move and find the spot where you fit to make the best team possible gives you the opportunity to participate at the highest level, no matter where you're from. And mm-hmm. I think that's very important that it doesn't matter where you're from. If, if you're the diamond in the rough of a certain area, you need to be able to move. And yeah, if, yeah. you know, and that that's just the way it is. And I think that's important. Yeah. You need to be able to find three other people that are the same caliber as you are and have the same mindset as you do that you are comfortable playing with. And, uh, it just is, it's a matter of numbers. It, it only makes sense that there's going to be fewer people of that caliber coming from a smaller area than a larger area. And we can get into it in another show, but what's happening today that seems to be another big secret, there's a bunch of juniors that are moving around the country today to play with another team. And I think Joel Kratz from Newfoundland is the one that comes to my mind right off the top is uh, he has done that and there's others doing it. I've run into them. I've talked to them. And so... To restrict even the, the juniors to having to play out of the same province or live there, I should say, to play out of the province, is even propping up there. So it, again, is a topic that's a difficult one. I understand the whole scenario. I understand the history. Mm-hmm. I understand the concerns from the smaller provinces and territories. But right now, I think this current system is not serving the smaller province or territories well, particularly if you are a very good player who's coming up through the system. Let's give Kevin Cooey as an example. If Kevin Cooey had not gone from Yellowknife to Calgary, would Cooey, Kevin Cooey be the great world-renowned player he is today? Because mm-hmm. he probably wouldn't have had three other people he could have played with mm-hmm. or had the opportunity for the competition without doing a huge amount of travel. Mm-hmm. So it's not practical anymore, and I know it's political as hell, and all sorts of people will be screaming at us every time we bring this topic up, but I wish they'd all sit down in a room and hash this out and figure out a better way of approaching it than currently is happening. Yeah, yeah, we'll have to see. I guess it's it's kind of like, you know, you bring up a good point, Kevin, that, that curling is so big now and it's so packed with events. Uh, sorry, boys, but, but you're going to have to look at making a life change and move your family, you know. Or don't and travel three thousand extra miles all the time. You know, it's like all the Oilers, Kev. One, they don't. Some guys don't live in Quebec. Other guys in Toronto. <laughs> I mean, you live in the same city. Well, uh, let's talk about hockey as a good example. So, uh, the Canadian Hockey League. So, let's say you're a a young player growing up in Vancouver and you're playing really good, and you come to the age where you're going to be drafted in the Canadian Hockey League, mm-hmm. and you're living in North Vancouver and you get b- drafted by the Brandon Wheat Kings. Right. So at the age of 15, 16 years old, you have to move to Brandon and play with that team right? or you're out of hockey. That's another aspect in this whole hockey thing that's never been discussed, never been brought up, but it's not just unique to curling. I mean, we're a big, big country with a small population. And to be able to find the players that you need in any sport to be able to be successful in the world stage isn't e- easy. And while curling, going back to the 50s, when a world championship started, I mean, of course we were the dominant country in the world because we were pretty much the only country in the world with any kind of numbers or any kind of competition going on. And that competition was the Briar. And it served a great purpose for many, many years and was part of Canadian history. It's Canadiana. 
But where we have evolved to, it isn't practical anymore to continue doing it the way that we have been for almost 100 years. I got an idea. You know, we do this podcast, boys, from different cities, okay, often. And uh, I think it's time, Warren, if we're going to continue doing this, that you and I move into Kevin's place in Palm Springs. <laughs> Change the sheets on the beds, Kev. Here come me and Hanson, okay? Yeah. We got to live in the same town, Warren. It's just the way it is, okay? We got to do it. <laughs> Uh, anyway, there we go. Uh, good, good show. Stick around. We got a guest coming up. Listen to the Inside Curling podcast ad free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. All right, here we go. One of our favorite segments of every show that we do. See, that's someone at the door. I still haven't got my doorbell fixed. Remember in the old days, Kevin Ward, when someone knocked at the door, that you actually answered the door back in those days? <laughs> <laughs> and all the kids went running to the door. We got company. We got company. Bring out the good cake. Throw on a pot of Sanka. Okay, we got someone at the door. This is called In the House, brought to you by Goldline. Goldline Curling Equipment can be found in pro shops and curling stores all around the world, plus our retail stores in Calgary, London, Scarborough, Mississauga, and they've got two stores in Ottawa. Goldline can be found at every Grand Slam of curling event and online anytime at goldlinecurling.com. He's waiting outside the door. Our guest today is Dean Gemmel. Warren, did I pronounce that right? I went over it nine times last night, okay? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, guys. You got it. Yeah, it's not that tough. Uh, he's just been named the interim CEO Big job here of USA Curling. Dean is actually a Canadian uh, who's from Niagara Falls, but actually went to University of Montreal at McGill. And uh, a rarity for me, uh, post-secondary education people. And during that time, was part of the Quebec team that played in the 1988 Briar. Dean started curling competitively in the U.S. in 2006 and was on the team that won the U.S. Nationals in 2012. He lives in South Hills, New Jersey, and before, coming the, before becoming the interim CEO, he was the director of development of USA Curling. That's a big business card, Dean. Come on in, buddy. Come on in. You know your way around, okay? Yeah. Glad to be here, Jim. And thanks for having me. Well, congratulations. I, I say, congratulations. Yeah, I, will, I, I do have to correct a little bit, say I've, I've lived in the U.S. for more than half my life, and I'm a U.S. citizen. And as much as I'm proud of my Canadian roots, uh, I am fully American. Oh, there you go. Okay. Oh, well, okay. The interview's over. We thought you had yeah, a chunk of You're going to kick me out now? Yeah. That's uh, Congratulations on the new gig. Uh, boy, that's a big one. The, the CEO of USA Curling. Walk us through that. Uh, not everyone would want that job, but you took it. Yeah. Well, you know, it, a lot of people would offer congratulations or condolences uh, to me at times here, but... Um, you know, my, my main thought here is how many times do you get to be a part of working to fix something you really love, right? So that's that's the role right now. And I have told people it might be easier coming in right now than taking over a team that just won four Super Bowls, right? So right. Uh, there's, there's only up, I think, from here. So uh, I'm excited to do it. It's been a great first two weeks and a few days. And um, I think we're making progress. We still have course tons of work to do but so far i'm uh, i'm energized and excited about things did did you take the job dean because you want to make some changes or you see things as okay but 
dedicated to the sport and like a lot of people who are passionate about it when asked to step up in a big job like that they say yeah I got to do that I owe a lot to the sport so what was behind the decision for you to do it well I think there is an opportunity to change right I think we do need to change the organization um, there's an old political saying where you know never miss the opportunity that is a crisis and I, I think that this whole few months we've been through uh, might just be that moment where we can actually bring about real uh, effective change. I think we need to take a long, hard look at our membership model uh, for starters and how we serve our members. Uh, We probably need to, in my mind, we need to look at tiered memberships. We need to look at a different relationship with our clubs. Uh, Those are things that we definitely need to do. Um, And we need to connect our our curling community, our passionate curling community more with the national organization and the work we do. We haven't done a great job of that in the past for a number of years, um, maybe decades. Uh, So I think that's it's not always easy work, but that's something we have to do. But I see this as a moment to produce some really important change. um, And I'm certainly a promoter of that. At the same time, I think we have an organizational structure in place that is better than maybe three years ago. So we have people in positions that I think are valuable, um, whether that's from a membership service side or, or I think our national team program is in a, is in a good place that it wasn't before. And I, I say all that, uh, and I, I've always said this even in my old job, I don't think there's anything we can't improve on. There's nothing we can do better, and that, that's sort of a, a mantra I take forward no matter what we do. I can already tell that collectively you are way smarter than the other three people who are on this podcast right now. Uh, <laughs> I don't know about that, but uh, speak for yourself, Jim. Yeah, you went. You went to McGill. Uh, you're, you're born in Ontario, Niagara Falls, I think you said. Tell us how you ended up in the states. Well, yeah, I mean, well, if I went to McGill, I, I grew up in the falls. I was born in North Vancouver, actually, but the. Um, uh, McGill has one of the bigger American student populations, uh, so and that that sort of led me to. Uh, New York City, where I worked for a long time in advertising and um, and also Michigan. So that was really the impetus at the time. It was, um, I think, like a lot of, you know, sometimes Canadians, we graduate from college and we think about trying it in the United States. And I just happened to stick it out for a little longer here. Kids born here and been here for a long time. So yeah, that's, that's really the story. My father also, um, I grew up on the border and he worked in the United States most of the time for most of his career. Oh, cool. And you can lend us money now. The exchange is still really high. So we uh, Yeah, I should be up uh, I should be making a move up there right now and churning some money over. We should have charged you. Uh Kev, over to you. Well, yeah. Hey Dean. Hey, thanks a lot for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. One thing that I noticed you've been a member of the GNCC for a year personally with your curling and where your curling club is for many, many years, fifteen years or something. And you've been involved with the high performance on the national level for a very long time. Right away, that just said, hmm, Dean's pretty well positioned, I'd say, to be able to somehow massage, for lack of better terms, both sides of this equation to to try to get things uh, maybe back on track in a smooth way. Is that one of the first things you're going to try to accomplish because of the the division right now between the GNCC and, and kind of the rest or the, or the central part of the, of the nation, um, but also high performance? And you've been involved in so much of both. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I live in Short Hills, New Jersey. That's and my home club is a Plainfield Curling Club. I've been a GNCC member since 2006, and I've always said that as a regional association, they do a lot of good work. I, I said to someone once, I've never played in a GNCC event, but I've always supported it gladly. They've done a lot of good work with five and under curling, for instance. So a, a good supporter. 
One of the first emails I sent on Saturday after starting the job was to Kristen Conrad and Bob Hogan of the GNCC to talk. And we talked the very first week for about 45 minutes. I'm not going to say I brokered the peace deal uh, at this point, but we at least had a productive conversation and they shared some things maybe I didn't know about the relationship in the past. And I shared some of my thoughts on, on where we could go. So the challenge is I, you know, I do want to not have a fractured national community. So somehow we have to bring that back in. And I, I joke sometimes that my popularity in the GNCC might have ebbed a bit in recent months, but uh, I think I'm still uh, at least above 51%. So I hope to build that up again. <laughs> I'm going to be up in Boston this weekend at a junior qualifier event. So yeah, it's, it's where I live in Curl. So on the high performance, the national team program side, I was in it. I like some of the changes that have happened in recent years to it. We have some really good top tier teams. We're working on building out that depth below it. And that's always a challenge. But you know, what's exciting to me is uh, the talent level is far above what it was when I was in it. So that, that's encouraging. I, I'm excited about where that's headed. First steps, my first focus is really on rebuilding our, our relationship with the greater curling community. And, and I do think high performance has a role to play in that. I do think our national team has a, has a role to play. And I always say that Serena Williams got kids to pick up tennis rackets, right? So there's a reason why we want to have both together in my mind. Well, yeah, and that's one thing that uh, doing the uh, various events down uh, in the States for NBC and the, the youth, I guess the age of your top athletes is terrific. Right. Like your top athletes are very young, which is really exciting. Um, before I let Warren in here, you were quite involved for quite a few years um, trying to get a club open in, in Jersey, I think. Yep. Involved with, uh, and you and I talked about it. Oh boy, Dean, this is a few years ago now. Right. But um but that also interests me because that's a major undertaking as well, trying to operate facilities also. So that that's another part of uh, your history that I think is really important in this case when you're trying to build the USA uh, USCA back up again. Yeah, it's um, I, I was involved. Well, I have a I have a company that I'm I'm disengaging from now called Curl NYC, and we formed really uh, to. There was a massive ice rink complex being built in the Bronx in New York. Mark Messier was the CEO. Uh, we heard about it. There were nine rinks with a eight rinks with a five thousand rink bowl in it. Very ambitious project, but we took Mark Curling. We met with the the Wall Street people that were behind it, um, and they were all in for curling to make one of those pads a dedicated curling facility. Now, so we spent a lot of time on that programming it. How do we make it make money in New York City? Unfortunately, the entire project collapsed a little bit under the weight of its own ambition. Not really our efforts. It was a four hundred million dollar project, and Turns out it's tough to come up with $400 million, even for Wall Street guys. So it collapsed on that, but the value that you mentioned is important. I mean, there was a part of me that was disappointed, and I thought, well, I put in, we put in a fair amount of work, but the work I put into programming ideas, I worked with Chad McMullen from Rock Solid quite a bit on how to program a facility if you started from scratch, and that's going to be pretty valuable. Um, mm-hmm. So we have our offices on the campus of Viking Lakes, where the Minnesota Vikings Training Center is, and there's discussions about a facility there. So that's exciting. So interesting way, but yeah, it came back. That that whole experience is, is proving valuable, even though it was disappointing when it fell apart. Yeah, usually that hard work pays its dividends, and you never know how in the end. But anyway, go ahead, Warren. Exactly, right? Yeah, hi, Dean. Thanks for uh, for joining us. I want to go back to uh, the GNCC and just talk a bit about uh, first letting our Canadian listeners know what we're talking about here. The GNCC is the Grand National Curling Club. And in the United States, um, I might best suggest in, in Canada, that'd be like a provincial association. 
and it represents the wheat region that's in the northeast part of the of the country. It's about one quarter of the curling population. Would that be fairly accurate, Dean? Yeah, it is. It's called the Curling Club, but it's a regional association, right. and it actually has expanded and stretches from Maine to uh, Florida to Tennessee to Pittsburgh. So it's geographically become quite expansive, right. and it certainly envelops some of our biggest population areas. Okay, so sort of what got uh, the whole ball rolling here with some of your issues down there was the fact that uh, about a month ago, the USCA suspended that uh, group, which would be like suspending a provincial association. And I believe this was uh, over a dispute regarding dues and payment of dues and uh, that whole issue. And I guess let's talk about that for a minute, this whole issue of dues. There's a problem in Canada. Uh, it always has been is to curling Canada Day only gets two dollars a person from uh, from each competitor, and that has been a struggle just to get that. And it's hindered, in my estimation, a lot of things that curling Canada could have done for uh, for the provincial associations. In the U.S., I believe right now you have changed things a bit, and you have an assessment per player, right? That is kind of collected through the clubs and goes back to the USA through the clubs. Is that correct? Uh, roughly, yeah. I mean, uh, technically, the members, the regional associations are the members of USA Curling, right? So they collect dues from the clubs through the regional association remitted to us. And the issue surrounded the level of compliance of how many regional association clubs in the GNCC were also members of USA Curling. So it's supposed to be 95%. It used to be 100%. The GNCC uh, has stated that they don't want to be a collection agency for USA Curling, and that's where the rift started. And frankly, I, I think there's fair arguments on both sides. And I, I think what was unfortunate was our board got put in a difficult position where they, you know, if they were going to follow the bylaws and policies that are in place, they technically removed the GNCC as a member association. That didn't remove any of the curlers, and that's where we probably didn't get the communication right. The curlers are still welcome. Um, gee, those those clubs that want to can join as at-large members of USA Curling. And we own, there are three regionally-based playdowns that the GNCC would typically run. So we, for this season, hopefully only, my, myself, frankly, for this season only, we'll run those uh, so that the curlers in those areas still have paths to those national championships. Right. To some degree, do you not believe that maybe this whole thing has reached a point and the same issue here in Canada where there needs to be sort of a division between the curling clubs or I like to use curling facilities versus the, the word club and the high performance or competitive players. And to some degree, that's where the conflict is, is that the regular members see themselves paying a, a, a due to the national organization, but they sort of say, what do we get from it? And that maybe there needs to be a clear line of this is club, this is competitive high performance. Yes, there's going to be a due charge, but this is how the split's going to be, and here's what each group is going to get from it. Is that maybe something to consider going forward? And again, I believe Canada needs to look at things in a similar way. The fact that the hodgepodge of mixing the curling clubs in with high-performance athletes uh, probably is uh, past its due date. Yeah, I, I think the reality is we need to do a better job of communicating how how revenue is used, right? And one thing that people don't fully understand is that our national team program is funded by the USOPC. So the United States Olympic Paralympic Committee funds that. And that money is not to be mixed with any of our general membership operating money. So the membership revenue funds the day-to-day -day business operations, right? So our athletes aren't getting, for instance, aren't getting their stipends from membership revenues. We'd all like those stipends to be higher, but it, it becomes, it's from USOPC funding. So the high-performance staff is paid out of that money. Now, that doesn't mean 
For instance, someone in my position right now certainly spends some time on our national team programs, but the two buckets are kept quite separate. And I think that that's something maybe our membership hasn't been aware of, and we need to do a better job of communicating. We're better off with one strong national organization operating out of those two buckets, serving both, fueling dreams of young curlers through both. So I, I do believe that two organizations doesn't make sense, but we need to do a better job of how we how money is used. I also think it's, you know, we're long overdue for some sort of tiered membership structure. You know, for years we've asked everyone for $34 and there might be a rec curler who could pay less and there might be a competitive player who would play more, someone who wants to play in some of our national championships. So that's something that's long overdue. It's something that other national governing bodies in the USOPC family do pretty effectively. So there's good models out there. It's not like we have to reinvent it, but that's certainly a change I'd like to see. The other thing we've never done is ask for more than $34. We ask for $34 only. So going forward, we might ask for a certain amount of money and then also ask people if they want to give $50 to help our arena clubs get to dedicated curling ice. So uh, we haven't been the best at asking for money. And if there's one thing a guy from New Jersey knows how to do, it's to ask people for money. So we, we can start to do that. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. In fact, uh, again, I'm not suggesting two separate organizations. I'm suggesting two separate compartments within the within the national body. And I, I think in Canada, they're facing the same issues. I, I sat through those meetings for years where there was never a trust between the provincial associations and the national bodies sure. body when it came to money. And it always every time they tried to put in a, a per capita to do it, well, what are you going to do with the money? Until that was kind of clearly defined, it never was. It never moved. And uh, for Canada to only be getting two bucks off of each uh, curler going to the national body is is insane because the national body is doing a lot of stuff for the associations and the clubs, but that money is coming from actually the season of champions source to a very large degree. Anyway, so I, I think that uh, that clears that to some degree. Let's talk about your, your national championships. We're into the end of November, and uh, at this stage, you haven't named a site or location for the U.S. Nationals. What's happening with that? Well, we were behind the eight ball on that, quite frankly. That wasn't, uh, and I'm not trying to pass the buck, it wasn't something I was working on for a national championships, but I'm happy to report that we're announcing the mixed doubles national site uh, right now, I think, as we speak. It should be going up, and we should be announcing our uh, site for uh, men's and women's nationals February 5th to 11th. We should be uh, announcing that by the end of the week. We're just uh, working out a few contractual details and trying to get signatures. So we will be an- announcing those. I am working pretty closely with our events manager, Aaron Kaler. I've worked with on, on our other events in the past. Uh, we're hoping to, to be able to announce you know, 24, 25, and possibly even 26 for those championships going forward, which is how it should happen, right? I mean, uh, that's what we should be doing. So good news on that. I, I was able to lean on one of my connections, especially for the mixed doubles nationals. So I'm, I'm happy we're going to have good sites. What's happening uh, with the USCA and NBC? What's your relationship with them these days? Where, where do they sit? Well, I, I think if you follow the sports television industry at all, you'll know that NBC uh, is really moving away from live sports. They've yep. closed and the NBC Sports Network. They've shuttered that. They're closing down the Olympic Channel. So their appetite for live sports is shifting mainly to I guess, substantially NFL Olympics. So in terms of in-between Olympics, I, I think we need to find a new new relationships there. So that's part of the agenda. I know that that work had been going on previously. I think we have a good product when it comes to national championships, especially, uh, and we're going to need to convince people of that, get, get some sort of network coverage. Um, that's certainly important. 
So looking at what they're doing, they seem to be shifting a lot of production over to the streaming service Peacock. Do you see that being a possibility for USCA of moving everything over there and getting more coverage as a result? Yeah, I'm certainly open to that. We had our, you know, our trials before Kevin arrived last year in Omaha. The trials, the the uh, round robin games were streamed on Peacock. I think part of it is just we have to deal with some uncertainty at NBC right now about what their take is on sports coverage in general, sports programming. If you talk to someone there, unfortunately, they'll tell you that you know they make more money from a rerun of Law and Order than live sports. So uh, that gives you some idea of where they're at. Certainly would not exclude Peacock or NBC Sports from any conversations going forward, but have to open a number, dialogue with a number of others as well. Well, yeah, when we're talking about uh, coverage and just the changes, um, not just NBC at all, but just the changes right. in the entire industry and uh, and streaming going forward. Um, but you've got a fairly good uh, relationship in the streaming world as far as being able to uh, to accomplish that at the national championships, don't you? Yeah, well, we're we're going to have a new partner for streaming our national championships this year. So, and um, one of the things, one of my ambitions is to um, not just stream our men's and women's nationals and our and our mixed doubles nationals, and hopefully get some of that on on uh, on linear and on network television. But you know, I want to stream as many of our other championships as well, um, as many as resources allow, is what we'd like to cover. I mean, we have. We have 11 different national championships and all have value to our constituents of curlers, whether it's the club nationals, which is like your club national championship a little bit in Canada, seniors, uh, U18s. Um, those are all great events that I hope we can start to cover. Well, you and I talk a fair amount. And of course, when it comes to junior curling, that's that's got to be up the up high on the list, obviously with our... Well, you guys, I, I mentioned a few minutes ago, the age of your top players in the pipeline and they're extremely young right so i i, I really think uh, for us curling in the future high performance wise you guys are in a great position i know we're talking all you know like this show about oh there's some negative stuff going on but in behind the scenes i see it being very very positive in the u.s because of the growth in the clubs and the age of your high performance athletes is i i think you guys are in a great spot yeah, we're, we're, it's not all gloom and doom for sure. I mean, um, we have, I mean, I'm going to be in Indianapolis uh, the weekend after, or two weekends. Uh, they're opening a new facility there. Got new facilities that opened in the Bay Area just this past year. We've got a new facility in Nashville, Tennessee that opened. So uh, a big part of our effort, I think, and I always said this when I was an athlete rep to the board, was how can we fast track facilities? We have a big con country with a population spread out amongst it, um, and we need to make our sport more accessible, which will help our pipeline um, and will will help um, you know just grow the grow the game exponentially. So anything we can do, and I wish I had uh, you know a giant bank account and I could just write checks to fund new clubs, but I don't have that yet. But that's that's a big part of our work is to make sure those those new facilities happen and are successful. And there's different models for them too. Nashville, for instance, is a different model than what you might find in a traditional curling club. And that's great. I mean, any new model that gets good curling ice and ways for people to play, I'm all for. Uh, Dean, uh, since we started this podcast, uh, immediately the topic that came up right away and everyone wanted Warren's and Kevin's opinion of it uh, is the residency rule in Canada. We had an email earlier uh, on the program that someone weighed in again. Uh, as you know, the way it works, you know, the, the national yep. championships is made up of teams that represent provinces. Uh, most of the talk we hear is that's a, that's a, for lack of a better expression, sort of a dumb way to do it. Both Warren and Kevin disagree with it. Uh, and yet it's still there. 
Um, first of all, what are your thoughts on that? You played in Canada, you played for Quebec on that residency rule, and how does it work in the States to qualify your teams for the national championship? Well, you know, one of the advantages we have in U.S. curling is we may not have some of the rich legacies you have in Canada that you have to actually manage. So we do not have a regionally based national championship. Our players can form from wherever, and we certainly have uh, teams from all over. Um, A lot of our top players uh, move to the Twin Cities just because of the training available there, but there are players from all over. Mm -hmm. Um, Like you only have to look at John Schuster's team where they live in uh, different states um, mm-hmm. and and some of our other teams as well. So so we don't have that challenge. Speaking to your particular challenge, it's I, I've always found it a vexing one to be honest, because I think the Briar is one of the great brands in curling, right? And so how how do you make those adjustments without losing that essential flavor of it? I do believe it needs work, and um, I, it sort of feels like maybe. Canada's been working around the edges, but it's tricky. I'm not sure exactly what the best solution is. And I think I've got enough on my plate down here, Jim, that I'm going to let you guys figure that out. <laughs> Good answer. In, in 1988, uh, before we let you go, uh, is that when you're on Team Quebec, when I hear that year, I'm going, was Guy Hemmings was obviously kicking around then. No, Jim. <laughs> no, you're you're gonna you're gonna make me people know I'm older than they even think. So uh, yeah, no, I was I was 20 in that briar. I think at the time I might have been the youngest player in the Labatt briar ever. Guy Hemmings was 12, Jim. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. He looks 100 now. I saw him on TV the other day. I don't know. I'll tell him that he's 12 years older older than me, and he looks worse, I guess, thanks to you, Jim. So, or younger than me and looks worse. But yeah, no, it was uh, 88. was in Shikutami, actually, which was an unusual location for it. And uh, that was the, the famous briar when Eugene Ritzick yeah. came up about a football field short in his last draw. So, oh, okay. Um, yeah, we didn't fare. We were uh, we were definitely middle of the pack, um, and I was definitely out of my element. Let's put it that way. Uh, I love what you said before I let you go because it reminded me of my own life when you talked about that project. I was aware of that at Chelsea Pier uh, of that project uh, that Mess was involved in, and you said it it got crushed under the weight of their own ambition. Uh, that sort of sounds like my life. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Messier, you know, I, he was great. We took Mark, uh, we took Mark curling, and he was a big. He loved the idea of the curling facility in it. He, of course, he knew it a bit from Canada, and really, it just came down to the the fact. I think it was um, a lot of Wall Street money, and even the most wealthy guys on Wall Street don't like to spend their own money, so they were looking for other money that didn't materialize. And right, um, so yeah, I think if it had been maybe a more mixed use project, might have had a better idea, better chance. But I think the goal was to really make it just the premier ice sports facility in the United States, which was certainly appealing. And, and we wanted to make our sport part of it. And it would have been. We, I sort of stayed involved even when I felt like it wasn't going to happen. We kept staying involved just enough in case it did happen. I mean, right. so, uh, so it was unfortunate. COVID was sort of the end of it too. So Right. Uh, Dean, you're impressive. You're very impressive. Uh, and I, you know, I, I bet other organizations in other countries are going to lean on you to get help with their organization. So uh, well done. You ever well spoken? Oh my God, I feel it. They need to just give me a little room first so I can get our things squared away. But then yeah, happy to help. I'm probably going to be leaning on them more than them on me in the short term. I doubt that. Uh, Dean Gemmel's been our guest. Thanks a lot, Dean. And congratulations on the new gig and good luck going forward. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks, Warren. Hey, thanks a lot, Dean. Thanks, Dean. Good luck.
Well, there he goes, Dean Gemmel. Is it just me or, or Kevin? Does that guy sound like he's Mensa? <laughs> so he's so, man, does he sound smart? Holy God. Yeah, he's got a lot of work to do, though. But Dean uh, Dean has been a lover of curling for his whole life, and uh, I think he's a good guy to have involved right now. Um, and he's good friends on both sides of the equation down there, well-respected. So he's got a lot of work to do, but I think he's a good guy to do it. Right. Anything stick out to you, Warren? Did you like what he had to say? And uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I did. I, I think their big challenge is going to be getting that whole situation pulled together with the Grand National Curling Club. And there are other, it's not just the Grand National. I think there's issues there with all the clubs. And I think the whole root of it all is is dues and what am I paying this for and what am I getting for it? And the same issue exists here in Canada. And I think a lot of it's communication. I think he seems to uh, identify that, acknowledges it. And I think if they improve the whole communication aspect and define things a little clearer, I think they're well on their way. So we wish them the best of luck yeah he, he sounds like a guy who's not going to sit on his laurels so it'll be curious to see what happens uh under his reign of uh usa curling good show boys uh we want to thank uh rod paulson thank you rod his company in-house strategies for all the great work rod's doing on our facebook and our facebook page uh check it out join uh there's lots of action on there we'd love to hear from you send us an email inside curling at gmail.com and uh, maybe we'll read yours if you're nice Okay, Warren, there's a bunch that are. We should do a not nice email segment one day. That would be good. Okay. (laughs) That would be fun, actually. (laughs) That would be very fun. Yeah, yeah. Thanks a lot again to Sports Interaction. You know what? We're doing that for sure. (laughs) Thank you to Sports Interaction, Coyote, Boost, and Goldline, who make Inside Curling possible each and every week. Okay, boys, have a good week. We'll talk to you next time on Inside Curling. See you, Kev. See you, Warren. Thanks, Jimmy. Thanks, Jim.